The scripture reading today is Exodus 28 through 11 and Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And from Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Cheryl. If I were to ask you this question, how would you answer? What is the greatest challenge you face right now in trying to follow Jesus? And there is an answer to that question that you probably would not think of right away. Uh, John Ortberg is a pretty famous Christian author And he had a mentor named uh, Dallas Willard. And when Ortberg was at the height of his ministry, uh, he's leading, uh, helping lead a megachurch. He was up to his neck in ministry and there was stress in his life and he was approaching possible burnout. He called his mentor, Dallas Willard, and said, what do I do about all of this stuff that's going on in my life? And there was a long, deliberate pause on the other end of the phone And then a voice came back and Dallas Willard said this, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And Ortberg wrote that down in his little notepad and said, okay, good, then what? And there was another really long pause. And Dallas Willard said this, there is nothing else, hurry, is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And as as I utter that line from Dallas Willard that's been picked up by a lot of Christian authors and and many preachers, uh, isn't there something deep down inside of you that agrees with that line? Doesn't that resonate with your soul. Oh man, I wish I could be less hurried, less frazzled, less driven, less frantic, less rushed, less pressured. Eliminating hurry sounds kind of like the life that I might be after. And of course, there are lots of obstacles to this kind of life where hurry is unknown. There's a German-Korean philosopher, that's an interesting combination. His name is Yun Cho Han. And he writes about how we've moved in our society from a disciplinary society to an achievement society. A hundred years ago, we were a disciplinary society. And what that means is that our society a hundred years ago was governed by the word no. Here are all the things that you can't do based on your class, based on your gender, based on your ethnicity, based on your location. 
But now, 100 years later, we are exactly the opposite of that. We're not a disciplinary society. We're an achievement society. And it's, we're not governed by the word no. We're governed by the word yes. We tell each other, you can pretty much do anything you want to do, be anything you want to be, as long as it doesn't, quote, hurt somebody else. And that's the ethic. And the problem with that ethic is that it is exhausting. It leads to burnout, it leads to anxiety, and it leads to depression. He actually writes about depression and he shows how depression actually rises right alongside the growth of the achievement in any culture. Because depressed people walk around and they think in their heads, nothing is possible. That's not true, but that's what they think. And he writes this, you can only think that in a culture that thinks everything is possible. And so we have people who are tired of having to become anything and everything. And there's anxiety that comes along with that because what if I never become anything? Or what if I become something, but it's the wrong thing to become? And all of this pressure to achieve has resulted in a society where we use substances and we use social media and we use work and we use Netflix to escape and to medicate against our perceived failure to achieve. And even if you've never thought about that, you've still felt it. And you felt it in a word that I'm gonna use today. The word is overload. Humans have limited capacity to overload a system, any system, whether it's a car, a computer, or a human being, when it's loaded down, it leads to a serious breakdown of performance. We could put the picture of a camel in front of us. Uh, camels can carry great loads, right? But, but if you load that camel down to what it can carry at its max level, and then you just put one more straw on its back, you know what happens. You break the camel's back, right? And it's the same thing with us. We have physical limits. We have performance limits. We have emotional limits. And we cannot try to push through those limits without consequences. There is not an inexhaustible source of human energy. God put limits on us. He created it from the fabric of the universe, in, into the very fabric of the universe. And when we exceed those limits, what we experience is overload. There are a hundred different ways that we can experience overload. We experience activity overload, change overload, choice Overload. Do you know in 1980, there were 12,000 items in a typical grocery store. Today, there are 30,000. You have 186 choices for breakfast cereal. That's overload. Commitment overload. Debt overload. Decision overload. Fatigue overload. Information overload. Media overload. Noise overload. Possession overload. Technology overload. Traffic overload. Work overload. Schedule overload. Do you feel overloaded? Yes. And all the overload means that there's less time for prayer, there's less time for meditation, there's less time for worship, there's less energy for service, there's less interest in relationships with the people around us. And we don't even see sometimes the very things that have us by the throat and we are enslaved and the pain is real and the chains are real. And when we're loaded to the max level, even one small thing, whatever it is, can crush us. And so when we, when we see a line, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. That's like soothing medicine to our souls. We long for that. Here's the good news. 
that God has a track record with overloaded and enslaved people. The Israelites in the Old Testament have been held captive by the Egyptians for 400 years. They've been forced into hard labor, forced into achievement and overload, and then God sends a guy named Moses into the country and leads these captives, these slaves, out of Egypt, so they're no longer in slavery. And in Exodus chapter 20, which is the text we read today, uh, all of these people are out in the wilderness, they're with Moses, and God gives them a set of laws that they are to live by. And it's the fourth one that surely would have caught the attention of slaves. It says this, do all your work in six days, but every seventh day, stop working. Just rest. And by the way, don't have anybody else do your work for you, not your son, your daughter, your hired hand, even the animals that you own. Don't have them do work either. Nobody is to work on that seventh day. Just stop, just rest. Let all the hurry that you've done for six days cease. And to the overloaded and enslaved, God says this, rest, rest. That's the command. He says, I want you to live in such a way that there's margin in your life so that there's actually time for what's important in your life, chiefly me. And the command is that I want you to use one day in seven to keep me as your treasure. And we call that day Sabbath because that's the word that God used. And the word literally means to cease, to cease. And so once every seven days, we are to cease, we are to stop, we are to quit doing work, we are to take a breath, we're just to rest. Now, instantly, all kinds of questions pop up when we start talking about this directive of Sabbath. Okay, how do I really do this? First of all, can it really be done? And what if I work on a Sunday? And wait a minute, are you telling me that I can't watch the football game next week on Sunday afternoon because I've waited 50 years to see that thing, right? Okay. It's so hard for us not to let legalism creep in. You can do this, but you can't do that. And so before everything else that I'm gonna say today, and I'm gonna say a few lines, and this is really another sermon, but I have to condense it. Jesus in the New Testament never commanded us ever to keep the, to keep the Sabbath. Your salvation, Paul will write, does not depend on the regulations you keep regarding festivals or new moons or Sabbaths, okay? There's no command to us like there is to the Israelites out in the desert to keep the Sabbath. There are no prescriptions for how to do it in the New Testament. There are no rules. And so there's all that, and that's another sermon. But be very careful and think before you automatically say, well, Jesus has come, so we don't have to practice the Sabbath. No rules always means more attention must be paid to something, not less. And that's because we no longer have the rules. Jesus put it this way. It's why he said the greatest ethic is love. Because love makes you pay more attention to how you live in the world than any rule ever could. Okay, so no, we don't have a command for Sabbath, but there is still a God who comes to you and says, I want the best life for you. And the best life includes margin. It includes space for what is important. It includes rest. Over 150 times in the scripture, we encounter these imperatives where God calls us to rest, and his message for us is that I want a life for you that ruthlessly eliminates 
hurry. And here's how. I want you to go back to how I built the universe in the beginning. It's right here in Exodus chapter two. It's right straight out of Genesis chapter two. God created in six days and then he rested on the seventh day. And then he set that seventh day aside as holy. So every seventh day that goes by is an opportunity for us to stop and to acknowledge the greatness of our creator. And why wouldn't we respond to an invitation like that? It would be like being a starving beggar on the street and somebody comes up to you and says, hey, guess what? I have a five-star restaurant right down here and I want you to go and it's all on me and I want you to spend the whole day there and I want you to eat your fill and you saying, eh, I'm good. You would never do that if you were really starving, right? Your best you involves margin. It involves rest. It involves pulling back from the achievement and overload in our society. And that's what Sabbath is designed to help you do. So two points today about Sabbath. Number one, and this is so key, Sabbath is an act of liberation. Most of the other commandments that we read in Exodus chapter 20 are just a few words long. Uh, They're things like this. Don't steal things. Don't lie honor your father and mother. Just a few words, right? But this rest commandment, number four, in the ESV contains 98 words of instruction. It's the longest. The second longest is actually the second commandment. And in the ESV, in the second commandment, there are 91 words that explain that the Israelites are not to worship anything else but God. And so God says more about Sabbath and idolatry than the other eight commandments all added up and combined. And so the question is, why the focus on these two? Don't worship anything else and take a full day every week to stop and rest. Deuteronomy chapter 5, 15 gives us an answer. And it is a restatement of the fourth command in Exodus chapter 20. But it adds one thought. It says this, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, therefore keep the Sabbath day. And so Sabbath to cease is connected with slavery. Why? I want you to think about the Israelites and their slavery and what their schedule would have been. It would have been this. I wake up and I go make bricks and maybe I get to eat that day. And after I'm finished making bricks, I go to sleep. And then I wake up and I make bricks, and maybe I get to eat that day, and then I sleep, and then I wake up, and I make bricks, and maybe I get to eat that day, and then I sleep, and rinse and repeat over and over 24-7 for 400 years. There is no rest to that schedule. Slaves do not get a day off, right? And so I want you to think about you. I want you to think about if you're saying to yourself, I can't rest, it means that you're a slave to something in your life. If you're always busy, if you can never say no, if you're swamped so that, so that rest seems like a fairy tale, then you're a slave to something just like the Israelites were slaves to bricks. And here's the key. God doesn't want you to be a slave. He didn't want them to be slaves anymore. In this command, God is saying, don't ever be a slave to anything ever again. Cease. Sabbath, and you won't be. 
And Sabbath liberates us from our slavery. Can you imagine what kind of joy and elation slaves would have, would have come upon them when they heard for the very first time in their lives, hey, guess, guess what? I want you to take a day off. What? Oh, we are slaves too. By everything that overloads us, by our schedule, by our obligations, by our work, by our phones, by our money. And Sabbath is this time that brings us, should, it should, just as much elation. It's the way we refuse to be enslaved by customers or by salary or by our expertise or by our accomplishments. God gives us absolute permission to say, I'm taking time off this week because I am not a slave. And Sabbath is a reminder that we are slaves no longer. So Sabbath is this liberating discipline of time that we can begin to practice in our life. Peter Schizero says, Sabbath is a 24-hour block of time in which we stop work, enjoy rest, practice delight, and contemplate God. We are the most overworked society ever. The most applauded sin in our culture is overwork and exhaustion. And we need to pay attention to a God who wants to come in and rescue us from that kind of slavery. A God who says, rest. Uh, Dan Ellender says the Sabbath is an invitation to enter delight. The Sabbath, when experienced as God intended, is the best day of our lives. Without question or thought, it is the best day of the week. Here's my question to you. Is it? Can you say that Sabbath is the best day of the week? Because it's designed to be that. It's designed to liberate us. It should be our best day. I want you to look at the benefits of Sabbath. I'll just give you four of them real quick. Number one, productivity. Actually taking time off and setting it aside enables you to do more rather than less. Rest is a real superpower that very few people talk about. Study after study shows that after you devote about 50 hours of your week to something, every hour after that reduces your productivity. You do not necessarily gain more by working more. And so Sabbath Pulling back, resting actually makes you more productive. It protects you. It gives you protection. God built into the rhythms of his creation, uh, these cycles, uh, night, day, rhythms of light and dark, the seasons, fall, winter, summer, spring, rhythms of weather and conditions, even our weeks, uh, our six days of work, one day of rest. You can see it in uh, Jesus' life where he engages people and then he disengages and goes by himself And these rhythms of life protect us from the overload that will break us if we don't have space. Mark Buchanan said it really well. He said, the root idea of Sabbath is simple. It's as simple as rain falling, basic as breathing. It's that all living things thrive only by an ample measure of stillness. A bird flying, never nesting, is soon plummeting. Grass trampled day after day scalps down to the hard bone of the earth. God stitched into the nature of things an available need to be left alone now and then. How many of you can say, yeah, amen to that. I need to be left alone now and then. Perspective. Sabbath helps you order your life around who you really are, your true identity as a child of God. In Exodus chapter 31, 
uh, God comes to Moses and says, I need you to speak to the people. Make sure that they keep my Sabbath. Here's why. Because you need to remember, you need to know that I'm the one who sanctifies you. Sabbath reminds us of whose we are. And because we are reminded of whose we are, we are also reminded of whose we're not. And we, it helps us to be able to fight against what we are not supposed to be. There are elements that are so often opposed to life as a ch- child of God. Busyness is one of those things. Consumerism, self-promotion. There are a hundred other things. And Sabbath helps us retreat from those things. Bill Galtier says, in order to eliminate hurry, you need to practice Sabbath regularly. You need to set aside a large block of time to be unhurried and unproductive. Do nothing. Don't try to make anything happen. Relax, pray, enjoy God and your family. The psalmist will say it this way, be still and know that I am God. And I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Finally, it's a preview. What do you expect heaven to be like? I think if we start talking about heaven, we we envision this perfect place of peace where there are no worries, there are no pressures, nobody's rushed, everybody's enjoying ultimate love and fellowship with God and with each other. And if that's what heaven will be, then I'm convinced it's also what Sabbath should be. Sabbath should be a glimpse of what we have coming, a day with peace, a day with no worry, a day with no pressure to perform, no hurry. Sabbath is, only a, is probably the only part of the Garden of Eden that we still have left and we get to experience. Okay, so how do I do that? How do I make Sabbath my best day? And we have the answer in the way that Jesus himself navigated the Sabbath. Time and time again, Jesus would go and he would heal people, right? He would heal the lame and the blind and the sick. And the gospel writers, when he heals, they make a point a lot of times about telling us when he healed people. And five times in the gospels, the gospel writers say Jesus not only healed, but he did it on the Sabbath. There was an invalid in John chapter five. In Luke 15, there was a crippled woman. In Luke 14, there's a man with dropsy. In uh, John nine, there's a man born blind. In Mark three, there's a man with a withered hand. And five times in the gospels, Jesus performs healing on the Sabbath. And that's instructive to us about how our best day should look. Because what does he do on the Sabbath? He helps He straightens, he strengthens, he opens, he restores. And maybe our Sabbaths should be about that too. And so let's put it this way. To to Sabbath well, do that which restores. To Sabbath, do that which restores. Your best day should be about three things. Rest and worship and delight. It should be about rest because you need to restore your physical body. Maybe the most important, spiritual thing you could do this week is to take a nap. How many people would say, yes, amen to that. I need a nap, right? Your best day should be about worship and restoring your soul, connecting with the God who liberates you. And your best day should be about delight and and restoring and refilling your emotional tank and doing the things in your life that bring you joy and are infusing you 
with life. And those three things, rest, worship, delight, will go a long way in restoring you and preventing you from overloading. And they will help you to refuse to be a slave anymore. Rest, worship, and delight. Sundays, or whenever your Sabbath is, because sometimes we don't have a 24-hour period of time, right? And so we take windows of times. Whatever your Sabbath looks like, I don't feel like that Sabbath needs to be one long continuous session of prayer and meditation. But it also shouldn't be about paying bills or catching up on work or replying to email or preparing yourself for some meeting that you're having this week. A good way to focus on what should and shouldn't happen during, during Sabbath is to ask yourself this. What do you need to fast from so that you can feast on? Maybe you need to fast from your need to control things. Maybe you need to fast from your availability or work or email or cell phones or the clock or the have-to projects that you have in your life. Maybe you need to fast from shame or guilt or screens or internet or social media or needy people or difficult people or planning or to-do lists or getting your acceptance and esteem from the work that you do. Fast from all those things. Maybe you need to feast on what is true and what is important and who you are And some of those things can be gained from Scripture. Maybe you need to feast on quiet and sleep. Maybe you feast on family and friends and community with other believers. I mean, you don't eat them, right? But you know what I mean, right? Um, Maybe you feast on great food and great music. Maybe you feast on the fact that your worth and your acceptance comes from God. Maybe you feast on reflection. And maybe that means a walk in nature. Maybe you feast on the absence of responsibility. You feast on the projects that you want to do. You feast on games with your kids or reading or hobbies that bring you life and joy. You feast on giving thanks. You, and over all that, you feast on the connection to the God who is freeing you from your work. Now, there are all kinds of things that we could out, uh, lay out about how to practice Sabbath. Um, interestingly, our sister church up in Overland Park, uh, one of our sister churches, uh, Southwoods Christian Church, is doing a retreat on March 7th on how to Sabbath. I think it's about a half day, um, and maybe you'd be interested in that. So we will put information about that in our email update this week, okay? And maybe you can do a deep dive on how to really practice Sabbath. But I want you to think about if you were a slave and then you were all of a sudden set free, what would you do? And however you answer that question, your best day, Sabbath, should be about that. Whatever liberates you with God at the top of it all because he is the one who sets you free. Now, that sounds terrific, right? Quit running, take a breath, rest, delight, and so... So why don't we do that? Here's, this, here's the way I want to end today. Secondly, Sabbath is an act of trust. It's an act of trust. There's a guy named Truett Cathy, and he started a little chicken place with his brother, and you probably know it as Chick-fil-A. Anybody? Yes. Oh, you know the waffle fries. Yeah, right? Um, and you know, if you know anything about Chick-fil-A, that, that come Sunday, you will not be eating chicken at Truett's place. Uh, even Kanye West knows this. Uh, he, on his new album, 
he has a, a, a song, Closed on Sunday, You My Chick-fil-A. That's my best Kanye West impression. That's, that's as good as it gets. But, like, this place is well-known, okay? And Sunday is one of the biggest days of the year for the restaurant business, biggest day of the week. But every one of the Chick-fil-A's 2,363 restaurants every Sunday are shut tight. And if you were to ask Truett Cathy, why in the world do you do this? He would tell you it has to do with loyalty. He's quoted as saying this, closing our business on the Lord's day is our way of honoring God and showing loyalty to him. My brother Ben and I closed our first restaurant on the first Sunday after we opened in 1946. And my children have committed to closing our restaurants on Sundays long after I'm gone. And if you want to be an operator for a Chick-fil-A franchise, you have to agree that Sundays are off limits. He says it this way, to honor God, this is what we're doing. But it could just as easily be to trust God. This is what we're doing. We trust that we can actually do more in six days than seven, and they do. Chick-fil-A restaurants make more money per location than any other fast food chain on the planet. They make more than McDonald's, they make more than Wendy's, they make more than Taco Bell, more than any of them, and those places are open seven days, and Chick-fil-A is open Six days. They've trusted that God's plan for living is better than our plan for living. And do you know what our plan is? Um, I, hear, I hear people say it this way. And this, I think, is the plan of the modern person. I'll rest when I'm dead. Heard it? Maybe you've said it. And we strive 24-7 and then we kind of wear that as a badge that somehow we're getting more out of life than everybody else. I want to throw a wrench into that philosophy with this question. When you say you'll be able to rest when death comes, will you? How do you know that? Isaiah 57 says this, the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest. It goes on to say, there is no peace for them. And here's the truth. The grave by itself will never bring you rest. I absolutely believe that there are people who have passed on who are really experiencing rest, but it's not because they died. There's something else going on. Revelation will say this in 14, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. There's the key phrase, in the Lord. Blessed indeed that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Romans 4, 5 says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Hebrews 4, 9. So there's a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. What, what do those all boil down to? They boil down to this. The work that we are hurrying to do is already done in Jesus. Underneath all of your work that you do, that you put your hand to, there is a murmur. 
And that is the need to prove yourself by doing your work. That is what makes us so tired. That is what makes us so exhausted because no amount of finished work is ever enough to prove yourself to God. But guess what? The good news of the gospel is that kind of work has already been done. Jesus hung on a cross for us. God made him sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And after that work of salvation was done by Jesus on the cross, he cried out from it and said, it is finished, right? And what does that mean? It means that his work has completed the task. There's no more work that's necessary for salvation other than the work Jesus did. And his restlessness on the cross made true rest for us possible. And that's where our trust has to come from, from the work that Jesus did on the cross. And it's finished. So stop working, stop striving to prove yourself and rest in what Jesus has done. There's an old movie, and I'm dating myself and a lot of other people, and it's called Chariots of Fire. And it's about runners. But really, it's about the Sabbath. It's about ceasing from work. There's one runner, Abrams, And he's amazing and he's focused and he wants the Olympic gold more than anything and he won't ever stop running and working to get it. His running is what defines him. There's a famous line before the the biggest race of his life and he says this, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence and will I? That's his question. And that's a man who is Working. Then there's another runner, Eric Little, who is also an amazing runner. But Little, although he runs, is not running. He's actually resting because he rests in Jesus. And both of these runners find themselves on a boat. They're on the, the English team in 1924 going to the Olympics. And on that boat, Little learns that his race is going to be run on a Sunday. And that's a problem because he's a Christian and he's committed to Sabbath. And it's not a legalistic thing. It's just that he is so secure in who he is that he's not willing to run even though he knows it will cost him maybe a gold medal. And he chooses not to run on Sunday. He rests. And here's the irony. When Abrams, the first runner, wins the gold medal, he finds that it's not enough. It doesn't satisfy him like he thought it would. He's not able to look around himself and say, oh, there, I have the gold medal, so my my existence is justified. He can't do it, and neither can you and I, because our work, our deeds, our accomplishments are never enough to justify us before God. But little, the second runner, even though he doesn't even run in the race, he has enough already because he has Jesus. He has nothing to prove. There is no work to do. And that's the good news of Christianity, that Jesus has run the race for us. He's done the work. In Jesus, we get to hear, it is finished. Because he ran, we win. And the real rest that we get in this life is to stop striving, to take a day every seventh day, seven days, and to stop and to cease and to Sabbath to remind ourselves 
that there's no more work to do when it comes to winning love or gaining approval or discovering our identity or earning righteousness. Sabbath is to trust that in Jesus, the work that really matters is already finished. So here's the one thing this week to your best to you. Practice Sabbath. Let God liberate you from your slavery this week. And that means that you're gonna have to ask yourself one question. What is enslaving me right now? And you're gonna have to be willing for a 24-hour period of time or some windows of time to lay that thing down and rest and worship and delight and fast from so that you can feast on. And whatever you do, however that looks for you, I need you to see a God, a good God, who is saying the exact opposite of your slave master. He doesn't come to you and say more, he says less. He doesn't come to you and say run faster, he says stop. He doesn't come to you and say work, he says rest and rest. It's what you're after. And here's the God of creation giving it to you. I want you to stand and we're going to end today reading the words of Jesus and then we're going to worship. And I hope you'll take this song and it will, the, the truth of it will allow your heart to rest. Would you say this with me from Matthew chapter 11? These are the words of Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls.